0: It was uh, first or second year university, I think. I was living in residence, and, and I remember sitting at a cafeteria table beside a friend of mine, Tim, who just lived down the hall from me. Uh, Tim grew up in the church, but I, I got the sense that it was sort of the toxic kind of Christianity, you know, the kind that of poisons a, a person's faith, because Tim wanted nothing to do with it when I knew him in university. And I remember we were sitting at the table, and... One day, out of the blue, he turns to me and he says, Mike, do you think it's reasonable that God would only give us 80 years to decide where we're going to spend eternity? It's like, what? He said, Well, think about it. He says, If I live to be 80, that's, you know, approximately the Canadian average. In the light of eternity, that is a not very much time at all. And I think it's an unreasonable expectation for God to to think that I could sort out what I'm going to do for eternity in in such a tiny period of time. I said, I hear what you're saying, Tim. And I grabbed a paper napkin, I pulled it over, I pulled a pen out of my pocket, and I drew a line across it. It's one of these moments, I talked about last week, where you just actually have an answer in the moment. I drew a line across it, I said, Tim, I want you to imagine this is an eternal timeline. This is eternity past, that is eternity future, this is eternity right here. I said, how big is is 80 years? And Tim said, well, this is exactly what I'm saying. 80 years is a speck. It's a fraction of a speck. It's a grain of ink. It's less than a grain of ink. It's infinitesimally small. And that's exactly my point. It's not enough time to decide where you're going to spend eternity. I said, yeah, I "I hear what you're saying. Uh, I said, Tim, circle 800 years for me. And then he paused. He said, well, I guess 800 years would be just a speck. It would be infinitesimally small. And I said, I think so. I said, circle 800,000 years for me. And then he smiled because he knew where I was going. And he said, yeah, it would be infinitesimally small. And I said, so, Tim, in the light of eternity, how much time is enough for you to sort out your spirituality and figure out what you're going to do with Jesus? They turned and went back to his plate of spaghetti, and that was the end of the conversation. Because Tim wasn't really asking me a question. Tim wasn't interested in the answer that I gave him. Tim was using a conversation about the afterlife to pose a challenge to my faith. And in that light, Tim, in his spirit, was exactly the same as the people who get into the conversation with Jesus that we're going to look at Today, starting this series, excuse me, last week, we were looking at Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, surrounded by a crowd of people that he's been teaching, and being challenged by the Jewish religious leaders who are attempting to, in the form of debate, discredit Jesus' teaching in front of the crowd and basically ruin his public career. Last week, we looked at the Pharisees, a group of religious leaders who had a political question. This week, Turning to Matthew 22, verse 23, we look at a group of people called the Sadducees who had a theological question for Jesus. It says this, verse 23, On that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, now that's important for you to remember for the story, they came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring Now, they're they're referencing an ancient Jewish law from the law of Moses that basically said this. You have a young woman, and her husband dies without leaving her any kids. Now, the law says that this woman is not allowed. She's allowed to remarry, but she's not allowed to remarry anybody she wants. She has to marry within the family. In other words, she has to marry one of the brothers-in-law who will take her on maybe even as a second wife. And the brother-in-law, his duty is to uh, produce a male heir for his brother with his brother's wife. The first child born or the first male born to the wife, the widow, will belong to his dead brother and who will inherit... Uh, his brother's entire estate, the house, the farm, the whatever, and will take care of his mom when he gets older. That first child belongs not to him but his brother in order to keep his brother's legacy going. The whole point of the law was to not allow family names to die out in Israel. He was going to keep the family name of his brother going. Now, there's no evidence that the law was practiced very much, Uh, actually at all, Uh, much to the relief of all of the in-laws across all three of our <laughs> locations, uh, and especially my two sisters-in-law. Uh, <laughs> so the, the two times it comes up in the Old Testament Scriptures, someone has this obligation to do this, they actually decline, which the law says you're allowed to do, uh, and then you'll get dragged in front of a judge, slapped in the face, spit upon, and your name will be besmirched for the whole rest of your life, but feel free you know, to turn it down if you want. But this law, this is the premise for their story. So then they say this, verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The story is made up. It's not true, but they frame it this way. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Imagine that reading of the will. To my brother Dave, I bequeath. You know. <laughs> the same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. And now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? since she was married, since all of them were married to her. So they, they're coming to Jesus with this question that, like Tim, this is not a serious question. They don't believe in the resurrection. Matthew's already told us that. They think the whole idea of an afterlife is preposterous. Um, and so they come to Jesus, and they say, okay, we got a question for you, and they paint in this hypothetical scenario. Let's say, right, Elizabeth Taylor gets, you know, goes to heaven with all of her husbands, who's... Whose wife is she in eternity? There's a whole generation of people who said, I don't understand the illustration at all. (laughs) Whose wife is she? Because they were all married to her. And they're giggling and they're laughing because the whole point of the question is not to ask a question or to get an answer. The whole point of the question is to try and make Jesus look stupid. They don't believe in the resurrection. They think it's a superstitious, folky, weird, hokey kind of belief. No afterlife. And they're trying to demonstrate how ridiculous it is to believe that somebody could experience life beyond the grave. They're trying to make Jesus look silly. It's not that easy to make Jesus look silly. I sometimes wonder why people mess with Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus replied, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's pretty definitive. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Jesus says, listen, your problem is this. He said, you've got two issues. Number one, you underestimate how powerful God is. He says, because your way of thinking about the afterlife, you create this hilarious story because you think the afterlife is going to be nearly exactly like this life. There's just going to be one continuous pathway all the way through. And what you don't realize is the power of God to transform things. What you don't realize is how different things are going to be on the other side of the grave. Is that people aren't going to be like they are now. People are going to be like angels. In the sense that they're not going to be angels, by the way. The next time at a funeral home or a funeral, somebody says, well, God needed another angel. Say, so don't become angels. They're like angels in the sense that they're not, they don't get married and they don't, they're they not given in marriage, There's no marriage in eternity, Jesus says. In the ancient world, marriage had two purposes. Number one, it was for procreation, which is unnecessary on the other side of the grave. And number two, it was to leave a legacy after you die with your offspring. Well, nobody dies on the other side of the grave. So there's no point to the institution of marriage. So Jesus says it, the institution of marriage doesn't pass on. People are like angels. They don't get married on the, in, in the afterlife. He said, but you are so unimaginative about what the afterlife could be like. It seems ridiculous to you because of how you think about it. You underestimate the power of God. Number two, he says, your second problem is you have no idea how to read the scriptures. He says this, but about the resurrection of the dead. So he's dealt with the marriage question. And now he's going to address the underlying issue which is this issue they have with the resurrection. And he says, about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? It's interesting, when they quote the law of Moses, they say Moses said. When Jesus quotes the law of Moses, he says, God says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus, to address biblically the issue of resurrection, to the Sadducees, Jesus has to stick to the first five books of the Bible because those were the only five books of the Bible that the Sadducees really gave authority to. Um, And that was their problem, actually, with this whole notion of resurrection. They read the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses, or yeah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they said, we don't see resurrection talked about in there, so we don't believe it. And it's true, it's not talked about there. It's not talked about for most of the Old Testament, for most of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, the Jews don't really believe in anything like an afterlife the way we think about the afterlife. That is a very late-blooming idea, almost at the end of the Old Testament. And there's only one really clear reference to resurrection, and that's in Daniel chapter 12, which is almost the last book of the Bible. It's only completed probably 200 years uh, before jesus is born one of the last books produced so they said we don't believe in resurrection because we don't see it in the first five books of the bible so if jesus is going to answer the question about resurrection he's got to answer it from the first five books of the bible and he offers this very creative reading of exodus chapter 3 verse 6 it says god said i am the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob and jesus said God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they have been long dead by the time those words are written. God says in the present tense, I am currently living in covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus says he's not the God of dead people. He's the God of living people. If God is in a covenant relationship with them, they are still alive. Therefore, resurrection. Out of the first five books of the Bible. And he absolutely shuts him down. It says the crowds heard his answer, and they were amazed. They all cheered, just like everyone did when I answered Tim. <laughs> they, they all cheered. Like, it was just, they had no way to respond to that. Because it wasn't a question. They were asking whether God was big enough to make a rock that he couldn't lift, right? It wasn't a serious question. It was just trying to trip Jesus up with a question about the afterlife. And just like last week, when we were looking at the Pharisees who asked Jesus a political question, what we said was the question they asked wasn't really that relevant to us. I doubt anybody's really burning to know whether, you know, whose wife Elizabeth Taylor would would be in heaven. Like, I, I doubt that's really on anybody's mind. But I do think there are probably people in our community who ask questions about the afterlife. Probably some who don't, and that's fine. But once your life has been touched by tragedy, once you've lost somebody that you love, once you've received a painful diagnosis, once you age to a certain point, those questions become significantly more relevant about what happens after here. It's a conversation we have a lot in our house these days with my mother-in-law, with my wife, with my kids since uh, my father-in-law passed away two years ago. We ask a lot of these questions. Where is Opa? And what's Opa doing right now? And can Opa see us? And will we know him when we get to heaven? I think there's a lot of questions that people ask about what happens after here. And the problem with every one of those kinds of questions is that at some level, the answer has to be, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about what happens after here. I mean, there is a lot written in the scriptures about eternity, but all of what's written, or at least much of what's written, appears at least to me to be metaphorical, or poetic, or symbolic in nature, not meant to be read literally. So you read about, you know, eternity is like a global wedding reception, where everybody's invited to the feast. Uh, uh, eternity is like a gigantic street with streets, or a gigantic city with streets paved with gold. Uh, eternity, you read about these fantastic beasts, because that's where you find them, um, that have four faces: the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, the face of an ox, the face of a human, and they're covered with eyes on the front and the back. These are not literal realities that you will encounter in eternity. This is impressionist art that's meant to evoke an emotion, a longing and awe and reverence and worship when you read about them. But they don't tell us much. And so we speculate, which is all we really can do. And our speculations, I think, a lot of time go as badly as the Sadducees. Because, maybe for the same reason, because we have a tendency to think that eternity will either be exactly like here or nothing like here. Right? So, people who think eternity will be exactly like here, you know, people ask, Will there be golf in heaven? Or, I'm going to go, and when I get to eternity, I'm going to ask God all the questions that I had while I was on earth. Well, you know, you're not. That'd be like saying hypothetically, I'm going to go to my PhD you know, oral defense committee, and I'm going to ask them all the questions I had about fractions in grade two. No, you won't. You won't care. Um, we, we tend to think, or, you know, people know that hear the church talk about worshiping God for eternity. And all you can imagine is like an eternal worship service, which sounds a lot more like hell than it does like heaven to some people. Right? Or we think it's going to be very different than here. Jesus says people are going to be like angels. and so we think, oh, great. So I'm going to sit on a cloud and play a harp for all of eternity because apparently that's what angels do. Or, um, Or, you know, I'm going to, the Jews used to believe that angels would be able to teleport themselves wherever they wanted and change their shape as though that's going to be the fun of being in, in heaven, right? But we just, we come up with these incredibly bizarre notions about what eternity is going to be like because like the Sadducees, we just don't have the imagination to be able to grasp what it's going to be. And so I wonder sometimes whether it's worth it to go there at all. The The one, I think... Question that is super relevant that people ask is related to the question that the Sadducees ask, and that's, Will I know and recognize and love my loved ones in eternity? Right? Uh, we have this from Shakespeare, this idea, Romeo and Juliet, that when you're married, that's for forever. And Jesus says, No, it's not. Well, if it's not, how come I don't get to be married? How, do, how come I don't get to love my loved ones in eternity? And I'll give you my two minutes of speculation on this. I think you do. I think you do. We have these stories about Jesus after his death and resurrection. So Jesus is on the other side of the grave. And what does he do? He comes back to the people that he knows and loves. And he recognizes them and they recognize him and they spend time together and they eat together and they laugh and he teaches them. And in other words, he continues to, from on the other side of the grave, he continues to invest in the relationships with the people who meant the most to him. Frankly, I look at a passage like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says this, For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Paul says when Jesus returns, when we're in eternity, when we're in the afterlife, in the presence of Jesus, what is it that's going to give us joy and hope? And what is it in which we're going to glory? We're going to take delight? He said, Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, you know what I'm looking forward to in eternity? I'm looking forward to standing with all of you, with the people that I loved, who journeyed with me in this life of faith and standing in the presence of Jesus and just worshiping him for eternity with you. Being in eternal community with you is the reward that I will receive in the afterlife. That's what Paul says. No, there's no marriage in eternity, but that doesn't mean that Krista and I won't have a a relationship. I think Krista and I will have a relationship that is infinitely deeper and infinitely more intimate and intimately more connected than we are on our best days and in our best moments in this life. It only gets better from here, but that's my speculation. But here's the thing about the story. Remember, if you were here last week, we said, We talked about the Pharisees' question and related politics and faith and said that the specifics of the question don't matter to us, but the general idea of politics and faith do. But then what we said, what I said last week was, but Jesus flips the conversation at the end and said, but that's not the most important thing. And I think Jesus does that in this conversation too. I was really struck when I was reading this passage by the very last thing that Jesus says to the Sadducees. He said, okay, no, there's going to be no marriage in heaven. People are going to be like the angels, and you guys are not thinking about this clearly at all. He says, for God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And I hear in Jesus saying that, both him making his point about resurrection, uh, which, by the way, we're going to talk about in three or four weeks, a whole morning on resurrection. Um, But I hear Jesus not just making his point about resurrection, but I hear Jesus saying this, God isn't interested in just being thought of as the God of dead people. God is interested in being thought of as the God of living people. In other words, stop obsessing so much about questions about what happened after here, which they may be meaningful and significant questions, but they're not the questions of ultimate relevance and significance. God is not interested in just being the God of dead people, he's interested in being the god of living people stop if you are focusing so much time and effort and energy being consumed by questions about what happens after this life and start obsessing over questions that are about what's supposed to be happening in this life because god wants to be the god of the living not just the dead You can see this is what Jesus is all about. In John chapter 10, verse 10, this is how Jesus describes his mission. He says, I've come that people may have life and have it to the full. Jesus doesn't say, I came so that people could go to heaven when they die. He says, I came so that people could experience life while they're alive and have it to the full. That word in Greek, I looked it up, it means that which is not ordinarily encountered in the world, that which is extraordinary, that which is remarkable. Um, it can be remarkable in the sense of more, in the sense of quantity. I don't know if it makes sense to talk about life in terms of quantity, but there will be, with Jesus came, so that people could experience more life than they ever dreamed imaginable more than is normally experienced. Jesus came, but there's also a nuance of extraordinary in terms of quality, in terms of better. Jesus said, I came that people would experience better life than they ever dreamed. In fact, that's how one translation translates those words. Jesus says, I came, that they would have real and eternal life, more and better life than they could have ever dreamed of. Jesus came so that your life could overflow with life, more and better and more real than you ever imagined. And he's, he's not talking, by the way, about living the dream, about getting your dream job, marrying your dream spouse, uh, having your dream home, you know, with the white picket fence and the 2.4 kids and the dog. He's certainly not talking about you having a cat. Um, <laughs> Jesus isn't talking about you winning the lottery and imagining the freedom. He's not talking about you being healthy and happy. And He's not talking about living the dream. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking that phrase in John means experiencing the life of heaven while I'm still alive here on earth. And what does that mean? In John chapter 17 verse 3, Jesus explains it. He says, this is eternal life. I'm going to give you a definition. That they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ you have sent. Jesus says, you know what eternal life is? It's knowing God. That's it. That's what gives you real life. That's really living. That, that is what gives you more and better life than you could have ever dreamed, is knowing God. Not knowing about God, not having facts and details and data about God, not believing in God or believing that there is a God or even knowing there is a God. It's not knowing about God. I know about Emma Stone. I know about Jose Bautista. Neither of those things change my life. It's knowing God in relationship because relationship is what changes your life. We're very fond of saying around here that life change happens best in relationship. Another way to say that is relationship is about life change. Relationships will change your life. And that's true of my relationship. My relationship with my wife has changed my life. My relationship with my kids has changed my life. My relationship with my best friends, my relationship with all of you is changing my life. It's making my life more real than it used to be, filling it with more love and more joy and more meaning and more purpose. It's making me more than I used to be. It's my relationships with the people who love me that help me see my own brokenness and find healing, that help me see my own sinfulness and find healing. Uh, greater maturity, spiritual wholeness, and character and integrity. They changed my life. My 10 year old, much to my chagrin, is developing um, insight <laughs> that she too often points at me um, and calls me out in my parenting. But a month ago, uh, she pointed out that it's not really fair that I would yell at her for yelling at her sister. Uh, an observation that irritated me to no end. Um, But when I had reclaimed my composure, I sat down with her and I held her hand and I said, please keep doing that. Please keep talking to me about the kind of dad that I'm being to you because you deserve for me to be so much better of a dad than I am to you right now. Relationships change your life. Jesus says, knowing God, being in a relationship with God, loving God, is how a person experiences real life. How somebody gets to experience the life of heaven right here on earth. That's how somebody gets to experience more and better life than they could have ever dreamed of. I'm super passionate about this because I grew up with a conception of faith That was not that faith is about me investing my life in knowing God in the now. That's not how I understood faith. I understood faith to have two critical moments. The moment when I chose to follow Jesus and mark that with baptism. And the moment that I died and cashed in on my faith by going to heaven. Those to me were the two critical moments of faith. And honestly for Years, I could not figure out the point of all of the time in between. Why God didn't just take us up to heaven when we invested our life in believing in Jesus. It seemed like a gigantic waste of time. So I figured I would do what other people do. Get a job and maybe start a family and go to school and try and be a good person and try and live a Christian faith. whatever. I had no idea the purpose of that time in between the date of my baptism and the date of my funeral. Until I discovered that what life is about is about investing every moment of every day, getting to know and to love God in a way that will change your life. You Ever heard the poem, The Dash? I'm not going to read it or recite it for you because it's cheesy. But basically, the point of the poem is this guy's reading a eulogy at his friend's funeral. And he talks about the two dates on his friend's tombstone. He says there's the birth date, and he talks about that, and he says then there was the death date, and he talks about that. But then the poem goes on to say, but the most important thing on the entire tombstone is the dash in between, because it's on that dash between the two dates that everything of any significance happened. And I think Jesus would say, this date matters when you declare your faith in Jesus Christ by baptism. And this date matters, the day when God invites you into eternity in his presence. But what matters equally much and maybe more is all of the space in between where God invites us to invest every single moment of every single day in getting to know and love That's what life is about. That's what real life, that's how you experience real life. That's how you experience the life of heaven in the present. That's how you experience more and better life than you could have ever imagined. So what does that mean? How do you experience that? Honestly, friends, you grow your relationship with God exactly the same way you grow your relationship with everybody else, you invest in it. It's really not Rocket Science, you come to places like this. When we gather together as a spiritual family to worship God, you join us. And not just join us, but you show up here ready to fully engage with all of your mind, ready to engage with all of your focus and all of your attention on the things that are said and sung and prayed and done. But ready also To channel all of your participation. To engage with all of your energy. To fully engage in the singing. To fully engage in the praying. To fully engage in the listening. To fully engage in the responding. To be an active participant in the worship. Coming here trusting that if you engage. The Bible says that when the community gathers. We become the place where the Holy Spirit lives. Where God takes up his residence. That if you engage. God is here and you will encounter him in this space. You engage with the Scriptures. If you're new at it, ask somebody which Bible it would be helpful for you to read. And just start by reading the stories of Jesus. But not reading for information. Going to the Scriptures, asking God whether he wouldn't, you couldn't encounter Him in what you read. That God Himself wouldn't leap out of the book and show you who He is and invite you to love Him. You get to know Him in prayer where you just talk to God endlessly throughout your day about everything that's going on in your life. And then you listen and you ask God to talk to you about who he is, to give you guidance, to give you direction. You ask God to to show himself, to reveal himself to you. You encounter God in community, in deep-spirited friendships with people that you love and who love you and who love Jesus with whom you are on the journey towards Jesus whether that's family or friends or life group or a mentor invest yourself in relationships with people who radiate Jesus ask them questions ask for their discernment ask for their guidance ask them to pray for you ask them to pray with you ask them to read the scriptures with you talk to them about what you're reading but invest in knowing God through the people who radiate God in your life do it through serving. In a passage we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, Jesus says that when you serve the poor and the forgotten, the ignored and the marginalized, you're serving him. He is there in the midst of that interaction. Go encounter Jesus in unselfconsciously, humbly, going to invest in relationship with people who've been forgotten and ignored and serving whatever they need in the love of Jesus, I promise you, you'll find Jesus there. You'll find him in your suffering. If you open your heart and just say, Jesus, show me who you are in the midst of what I'm going through right now. That those who have been through suffering, those who have experienced pain, can testify that even if in the moment it feels like an absence of God, there is a presence in the midst of the absence. That God can be real with you in the midst of your pain. You can meet him in your work. You can meet him in your hobbies. You can meet him in your art. You can meet him in music. You can meet him him anywhere, in nature, anywhere. If you go through life with an open mind and open eyes and open ears and an open heart with this attitude that says, God, there is nothing more that I want in my life than to know you right now. To know you better than I have. To know you deeper than I do. To love you more than I have in the past. So that I can experience the life that you want for me. So that my life can be as real as it can possibly be. So that I can experience the life of heaven in my life on earth now. So that I can experience more and better life than I had ever dreamed because of my relationship with you. That, Jesus says, I think is what it means for God to be the God of the living and not just the God of the dead. Where are you in your life? I mean, any good relationship, you know it and I know it. Any relationship worth its salt, any relationship worth having is a relationship worth giving up everything for, dropping everything for the people we love. Where are you in your life in terms of what you are willing to invest, to give up, to set aside, and to pour into knowing God and experiencing real life here and now, not just there and then, but in the here and now, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. That's what Jesus wants us grappling with. Let's pray together. Jesus, sometimes our questions About things like the afterlife are actually questions that are intended to avoid dealing with life in this world. We ask ourselves those speculative theoretical questions as a way of not addressing what's happening in our life right now. Not always, but sometimes. God, for those for whom the afterlife is a real barrier to their ability to invest in faith, would you please... um, would you please be present with them in the midst of the wrestling? But God, for the rest of us, would you invite us to pour everything we have into discovering, into knowing you in this life here and now and discovering the reality that there is no better thing in the entire world than to experience a life in relationship with a God while we're living Thank you that that's why Jesus came. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.